So the best, the best uh, things that we have are based on, well, what do we know about who's vulnerable to tendinopathy? And the people that are vulnerable are those that have strength deficits. So my first tip would be keep your athletes strong. We love single leg work. We love isolated work. So we would go, you know, with seated calf raise and standing calf raise and leg extension. And we would go through all of these very non-functional um, isolated exercises because if someone has no deficit, then you could put their kinetic chain together in a functional way. But conversely, if you give someone a double leg squat and they have a deficit, it'll that deficit will remain. It'll find a way to hide in the kinetic chain. So my first tip is keep people strong and keep the exercise isolated. That was Dr. Ebony Rio speaking on tendon training and rehabilitation in the context of unilateral versus bilateral training exercises. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches, training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 144 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. And we have a wonderful episode that really helps to complete uh, really my vision for this well-rounded spectrum of sports enhancement and that is Dr. Ebony Rio, a leading researcher in tendon pain and rehab at uh, Latrobe, based out of Latrobe University. So uh, tendon strength, tendon, uh, you, we've heard uh, sports performance coaches talk about it a lot as this missing link. We, we're so uh, muscle driven and, and that's not a bad thing but the fact of the matter is that tendons uh, play a critical role in our movement as sports sports people, <laughs> uh, it's uh, you've heard me probably mention research like Stefan Holm's Achilles tendon was the high jumper who jumped two feet over his own head from Sweden. His Achilles was four times as hard to to um, lengthen as the average human being. Or Christian Thibodeau writing these articles about these legendary strongmen who had these tendons that were far thicker than the average human being. So there's obviously adaptations that go beyond muscle and even intermuscular coordination and and uh, and all these and all these things you learn in exercise physiology. On top of that, and as uh, Ebony is going to talk about today, is that 
tendon rehabilitation is very fundamentally different than muscle issues or bone issues. It plays by different rules. So by learning more about how tendons work and process load, we can become better coaches in terms of A, uh, preventing our athletes from having tendon issues in the first place, Achilles tendonitis, knee problems, patellar tendonitis, patellar tendonitis. Um, and who hasn't had athletes who have dealt with those issues, uh, as well as the reconditioning process. Why are tendon issues so much more nagging than just muscle strain issues? You're going to hear all the time if you're working with athletes, um, they are probably far more likely to complain about a recurring Achilles or knee issue than they are a recurring hamstring issue. Although recurring hamstring issues certainly are, are, are a thing, absolutely, no doubt. But in, in my experience, it seems like that, that nagging tendon pain is such, a, it's such a hard thing for people to get rid of. And so that is where Dr. Rio is absolutely fantastic. Uh, she is one, one of the leading researchers on this topic, the most knowledgeable people on tendon training and rehab in the world. She also has a broad spectrum of clinical experience from the Australian Institute of Sport, the Australian Ballet Company, the Australian Ballet School, Melbourne Heart Football Club. Uh, she's worked at the Vancouver Winter Olympics and much more. Going through like my 20s and then 30s, every, it seems like every time I research tendons and tendon training, I would land on one of Dr. Rio's studies. And she has done some tremendous research in this field. And it was actually a, uh, a video of hers, a presentation on tendons and training the brain that just really, I was so uh, blown away with. I realized I had to reach out to her and get her on this show. And I'm really glad I did. So on this show, Ebony gives us some fantastic information on one, how tendon injuries and rehabilitation and reconditioning is fundamentally different than muscle injuries and reconditioning. Uh, and then within that scope gives us optimal ideas on how to really eliminate or to optimally deal with pain and dysfunction in the scope of those. Uh, she also is gonna talk about the types of training loads on tendons, how muscles and strong muscles can help mitigate those tendon injuries and tendon pain. Uh, as you heard about a little bit in the teaser as well, training implications for all that. She also goes into the brain, neuromuscular development, uh, tempo training, metronomes. You've heard Dan Fichter talk about that. So she is going to go in depth on the idea of brain training and metronomes. And uh, finally, uh, ideas on maximizing tenant strength for athletic performance, which I know is really important for those coaches who are not necessarily part of the rehab and reconditioning process in athletes, just knowing how do we hit this from a raw performance end of the spectrum. And there was a very interesting review that Ebony mentioned, which I also included in the show notes. So uh, that being said, let's get on to episode 144 with Dr. Ebony Rio. So what drew you to your field to say specifically like tendons and connect? Did you have like a lot of injuries when you were an athlete or, th or things that, how did that uh, become an interest of yours? Yeah. So my, I, I've always loved playing sport and my, my preferred sport is basketball. I also did um, athletics when I was younger and I, I loved it and I never actually um, got any tendon injuries I did my uh, anterior cruciate ligament playing basketball but the thing that actually drew me to tendons as a research interest is when I was working at our Australian Institute of Sport and the tendon injuries of our, our track and field athletes and our court sports 
really provided us the biggest challenge. If someone broke a bone, we had really clear indications of how long it would take. We could really easily communicate that to the coaches. Everyone understands a broken bone. Everyone understands the rehabilitation you need after an injury like that. But even a muscle strain, it's much better understood. Whereas tendon pain was uh, debilitating, it could affect people's performance but it didn't necessarily affect their participation. So they could often still um, train and potentially compete. But what it did is it took away what they were good at. So it almost had this intangible effect on their performance. So that's what athletes would say to us. Often they wouldn't come to the physio department um, complaining of pain. They'd complain because the tendon, the tendon injury or the tendon pain had had knocked off and really taken away their spring and what they were good at and so that really that really spiked my interest in terms of these um, clinical challenges I started to really really enjoy um, trying things with them and, and seeing how we could improve their performance yeah that's I mean I think that's really great problem solving within like the research interest field I and I I mean just being an athlete I guess myself you know for for these so many years and a jumping athlete in particular it's like yeah it's like you said like if you have a broken bone it's x amount of time or even like a muscle strain I mean there's a little variation to it but it's like okay you have a grade two hamstring this is about the time frame you're looking at but tendons are different like it's like a different animal and and it's, I know it's super frustrating for a lot of people too, you know, like, oh, this Achilles tendonitis, I've had it for X amount of time or patellar tendonitis. And, and, uh, so it's certainly a really interesting field with, I think probably a lot of unknowns that we're, that we're looking to put together compared to what we know about, uh, muscles and bones. Really true. And in fact, you've already, um, highlighted one and one of them is actually around our understanding of what's going on in the tendon. So, what we know is that tendons uh, don't have this inflammatory process the way our muscles do. So if we strain a muscle, we have this triphasic, we have this three-phase response of, of you know, um, inflammation and, and it goes through this process to scar and to actually heal and regenerate. And we know that tendons are not the same. They actually don't have a classic inflammatory process. The pain is not inflammatory. And the reason why that's important is when we're communicating with our athletes and our coaches and our, our doctors and, and in fact everyone, we need to be really cognizant of our language because if we say things like tendonitis, that really invokes an inflammatory condition and we know that um, the that means that people will think of a really passive approach. Actually, if if you ask your friends and family or your athletes if something's inflamed, what should the treatment be? People will say things like rest or ice or anti-inflammatory medication. And we know that in fact none of those things are effective for tendons in the long term. Um, they can potentially be detrimental. And we actually know that our best evidence is for exercise. So we really promote the language of tendinopathy because that really um, um, gets people on board with a load-based program. So I never let my athletes say tendinitis. So I want all <laughs> of the viewers out there to, to pick up on that one key point because it has such a powerful implication of what people think they need to do to get better. 
Yeah, no, that's I, I really like that, actually, as you were talking. And, and I've seen this plenty of times. Well, not only with athletes who it's like, okay, you have Achilles tendonitis. Well, you should just rest. And, okay, now you're cleared. And then, of course, you know what happens next. They just end up right back um, in, you know, injured again. And even even like myself, I, I've had Achilles things on and off. And, but it seems like every time I take a break, like I just went on vacation and I – it, it's almost like hurt worse when I'm just like on vacation, not doing anything. But if I'm doing strength training for it and I'm, I'm doing being mindful of some particular things or even doing high rep, like low level jumping exercises, it feels better. And so it's definitely, it's such a weird thing, right? Like it's uh, like you were saying, and I'm glad that we can like rule that, that tendonitis uh, term out and the, and it's really interesting about the, the inflammation as well. Yeah, and, and you've made a great point. We know that uh, tendons love load. We just have to help them with uh, what load and the timing of it and the progression. But tendons absolutely love to be loaded. It's what they're built to do. And um, I, I want to share something with you that um, Jill Cook taught me a long time ago, and I use this with all of my patients. So I want everyone to, to get their right hand and put it just slightly above their left hand. And your right hand is your capacity. And your capacity is how much your muscle or tendon or bone or, or any connective tissue can do. And your left hand is the load, the load we place on it. And the reason why the right hand is higher is your capacity is only ever just above the load you put on it. So everyone will understand that because it's use it or lose it. We're all really familiar with that, right? But what I want to teach people is if you, if you um, have – a sore Achilles tendon and you think, oh, I should, I should rest and you take two weeks off, I want everyone to drop their left hand and then I want you to think about then what happens to your capacity and people can really clearly see that your capacity drops and that's true. That's in fact true. If you rest, you drop capacity and then what happens, Joel, if that person with Achilles pain tries to load again even with a load that they've previously been able to do, because they have lower capacity, they can get into trouble, they can get into pain. And what happens is inevitably they rest again. And that's how we get in this cycle of disuse. And that's um, predominantly one of the main reasons I challenge our invasive or our passive approaches to tendon pain, because they are almost always associated with downtime and downtime is the enemy of tendons so i want everyone to remember that relationship between load and capacity and then i say to my patients i say to my athletes well how do we improve your capacity and they say load spot on yeah that that really resonates uh with some things that i've heard from other guests on the show like uh nba strength coaches and and even in these like you know, I think it it's more traditional to want to like uh, just you know do the typical strength exercises, you know, squats and deadlifts and cleans. But like uh, it was Chris Chase who was on the show previously was just talking about using leg extension and a calf raise as a means of loading the tissues. Is what he was talking about. And uh, with what you're saying there too, and I, and I kind of went in more depth with Chris after his show. But I was thinking to myself, okay, like this does start to make sense. And, and you've really clarified things for me in the, even in the last five or 10 minutes, just how important um, the, the capacity of what you're able to handle is and with the tendon being kind of fundamentally different than muscle in that regard. Absolutely. And so it's all about slowly improving the load capacity of your tissues, 
right up to the um, required capacity of your sport. Yeah. Um, and so, well, within building that capacity, uh, and that, this is some questions I wanted to ask you today, is I know there's a lot of talk about different, you know, different training tempos and eccentrics and isometrics when it comes to tendons. And I suppose probably some of the biggest like tendon areas is that people complain about is a patella or knee and then Achilles. Um, but what is some, what are some of the pros and cons of some of these different, um, emphasis of training, uh, with the tendons in mind? Fantastic question. I think that each of our, um, each of our, training modalities and each of our different contraction types have a role in in rehabilitation and uh, performance of course because that's in fact how we use our body uh, we use it isometrically concentrically eccentrically um, through range so I think um, a coach that has an understanding of the the specifics of their sport is is gold and I think that's wonderful. And I think um, the best thing that people can learn from um, that question is there's no recipe. There's no one thing that people should do that completely rehabilitates that person. In fact, it has to incorporate all of those things and it has to be progressive. So I want to teach um, your listeners, Joel, that I want them to think like a tendon for a couple of minutes. And if you think like a tendon, you can see four different types of load. So the first load is called tensile load. This is the highest load for a tendon. It's the sort of load that is fast. And it's when I ask your tendon to store and release energy like a spring. So for the Achilles tendon, that's running, um, you know, hopping, uh, for the patella tendon, it's it's jumping. It's really fast change of direction, like at the um, at a tennis um, at a tennis net. So fast change of direction, like a fast lunge in and out. So energy storage load or tensile load is our highest tendon load, and it has to be fast. Now the next load is compression, and compression is where the tendon sort of squashed against a bone. So the easiest one to think about is our Achilles tendon when it's in dorsiflexion. Um, The third load is a combined load of tensile load and compression. So that's like a fast change of direction for the Achilles where you drop into dorsiflexion and then spring back the other way. Um, So you ask your tendon, your Achilles tendon to quickly change direction for you. And then our final load is a... shear or friction load and that's where the outside structures of the tendon is like a layering or a sheath that slides over our tendon and the reason why that's important is that it's a different clinical presentation and it's a different um, diagnosis now the reason I want everyone to understand load is if you understand load you understand tendon presentation and you actually understand rehabilitation you don't even know it yet but you do So I told you that anything that was fast and anything that was in compression was provocative for a tendon. So therefore, we know we can safely do isometric or static load because it won't provoke your tendons. We also know that we can do slow concentric and slow eccentric work out of compression and we won't provoke our tendons. So all of a sudden, we have a fantastic... Um, 
start point and a fantastic understanding of how we can use strength training in our load progression. Um, so where do isometrics fit? Isometrics can be fantastic at the start as a way in. It's a strategy that won't provoke tendon pain. By definition, it won't provoke tendon pain because it's not fast. We do them out of compression. We can also really safely do our isotonic or our concentric eccentric out of um, compression and get some great strength through range. And then building into those faster movements depending on what the person requires. So the, the pros are they're all fantastic. The cons are when people combine speed and load. So what I mean by that is our tendons can get into trouble doing things like um, box jumps with weighted vests or doing something like a, um, a calf raise off a step if you have an insertional Achilles problem because we're combining compression, um, a deadlift for a hamstring tendinopathy because you're actually dropping into compression. So the, there's no con of the exercise. The con is us as, as, as um, clinicians not understanding tendon load. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, and it's uh, to me, it's really interesting, too, how just like, I was even just thinking back to your kind of the capacity uh, thought, like, what is that threshold for, what's like the maximal intensity threshold that you can uh, achieve in a rehab program, or even a strength program in like post rehab or something like that, where... If if you have this like injured tissue, and I was going to ask you about this as well, is like just the nature of like um, like pathological tendon tissue and healthy, and like and since tendons require load, but you can't go too hard. <laughs> it seems like it's uh it's kind of a delicate balancing act, and then knowing like what loads to utilize versus um, what loads become too ballistic, and and I I mean on some level or sense, I mean it's. As long as whatever you're doing is pain-free but has some level and intensity to it, you're probably in the right direction. That's, that's another great point. So one of the things we teach our athletes and we teach our coaches and, and physios and everything is, that, is, is when to listen to your tendon. And actually the best time to listen to your tendon is 24 hours after the load you've put on it. Hmm. And your tendon, if it's, if it's the same on a load test, so, for example, your first couple of steps in the morning for um, Achilles tendon pain and stiffness or how many minutes it takes to warm up, if that is low and stable or better than the day before, then your tendon's happy. If your morning stiffness or your load test has um, gotten worse, then your tendon's not happy with what you did the day before. And the reason why we use 24-hour response is because tendons can be a little bit tricky. They can actually warm up um, during activity. And so if we listen to our tendon during activity and only during um, and say, oh, well, it's pain-free, we actually have the potential to do far more than what our tendon's happy with. So we teach people to listen to their tendon and then next time they do the load, they just increase it slightly 
from what they've previously done. We don't make big changes. Tendons hate change, and that's a big change up or a big change down. So listening to your tendon the day after a load gives people a really clear idea of what's provoking their tendon. And as you said, whether or not they've managed to kind of find that sweet spot of how happy the tendon is with the load. Interesting. Yeah, no, I could totally see that, especially with an athlete who's just like, I want to get better. And it's like, this doesn't hurt. <laughs> of course, this doesn't yep. hurt. The uh, classic is the Achilles. The classic is the Achilles. You know, people start running. Oh, you know, it was a bit stiff. It was a bit sore. And then I felt fantastic. So, I, you know, I did 20Ks today and their previous run was 10 and they get sore. And that's how people get into that, that cycle of overload and unload. Um, so teaching people to listen the day after and then the next time they do an activity, they do only ever a bit more than what they'd previously done or if they were provoked, you know, they do a bit less than what they'd previously done and that's how we teach people to find um, their ceiling, I guess, of what they're currently coping with. And the whole idea is that you keep pushing up that capacity, you keep pushing up that ceiling, but you don't push it up if you keep um, jumping over it, if you keep provoking it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I mean, I can totally see the 24-hour thing as well with especially something like Achilles because, like, you can warm up and your Achilles feels better. Like, that's that was me in my mid-20s. I was still jumping, you know, track and field and high jump and triple jump as a post-collegiate. And I would, after I warmed up for 10 minutes, my Achilles would feel fine. But then the next day I'd get out of bed and the first step was just like, ugh, like, <laughs> and then it would yeah. just repeat that process over and over again. So. I, I could definitely see that because it's almost like, you know, whatever analgesic effect the warm-up has or, um, yeah, it definitely makes sense. I, I was going to ask you as well. So, I mean, what is, I mean, it's it's tough then, I guess, or it could be. Like, what, where do you really start with loads then? Like, where, is there a, a protocol or a certain amount of reps or a certain volume that you tend to start with since, and then just kind of go, okay, next day's good, like, let's let's up it. Like, what's, what's the starting block then since uh, you clearly don't want to, um, provoke anything the next day yeah nice question so if we consider if we start with someone that's in rehabilitation so if we pretend for a second they're not in season we'll, we'll deal with those things um, separately so if we have someone that's rehabilitating the two things to understand is what loads are provoking them and what loads are totally safe to start with so the loads that will provoke people will be, you know, anything fast or anything in, that's in compression. So if we take someone with an Achilles insertion tendinopathy, I would go through their gym program. I'd make sure nothing was in dorsiflexion, nothing was off a step. They weren't doing any stretching. They weren't, um, you know, doing extra yoga and downward dog and anything that's compressed that insertion i'd also talk about maybe putting them in some heel raises so we take them out of compression so we deal with our provocative load then the, the flip side of that is what loads do we know we can start with well we know we can start this person with isometrics out of compression we know we can start them with concentric eccentric out of compression so none of those loads will provoke this person so that's a really great place to start and then as because we've taken away their provocative load, their 24-hour their, their load, load pain will be coming down. So what we're looking for is that their pain and stiffness really comes down. Um, sorry, that their pain and stiffness comes down over a period of time. And then we're not just dealing with pain and stiffness. We are so interested in function. So what we do in that period is we set 
objective markers around their strength and their strength endurance that they really need to hit before we add anything faster, before we retrain their spring. Um, so it's not just when your pain's a bit better, we start going for a run. We say, right, if you want to play basketball, you need to be able to do, you know, 35 single leg calf raises on each side. You need to be able to leg press one and a half times your body weight each side for four lots of six. You know, we have these objective markers so that we have this strength base. You need to be strong, critically strong before you do anything fast. Um, so that's how, and then we start some of the faster movements and, and listen to the tendon the next day. Yeah, I know there's um, there's kind of an interplay between the, the muscle and the tendon in terms of keeping the tendon healthy. Like the, the muscle needs to, I've heard that, that strength does help. So is it kind of a thing where the the muscle has to be strong enough to kind of meet the force of the tendon or it can take some of the load off the tendon? Uh, how does the strength of the muscle and the, the like what we would experience in a typical strength program, how does that impact what we're going to see from a tendon um, a aspect of injury or injury prevention? Good question. So one thing that your listeners might be able to picture is if you walk upstairs with um, trying to keep your heel off the ground, if your calf is not strong enough, then what happens is you, you just drop, you collapse, and all the load goes to your tendon. So what you're trying to do with having a really good muscle um, basis is to give something for the tendon to really um, coil back off. You know, we're talking about a spring. So if you think of a, a sprinter, the gastroc works almost isometrically sprinting in 100 metres, and it's actually the Achilles tendon that works like a phenomenal spring. Um, it's not quite isometric, but people will understand what I'm saying, that if, they're, if you have an incredibly um, powerful calf complex, it's far too slow to contract and relax your gastroc running down 100 metres. It's far more efficient, and our best sprinters have much more um, tendon viscoelasticity, and that's what they're, they're using to sprint. So the way I see strength is it's not just the attached uh, muscle, it's also the ability to distribute the load across the kinetic chain. So if we think of the patella tendon, if I quickly change direction, so if I lunge over on my right leg, but then I need to um, move quickly change direction away from that position, it's actually my soleus that decelerates my tibia. So it's the lower part of my calf which slows down my shank bone and helps project me back in the other direction. So if my soleus is not very good, all the load for that change of direction goes to the front of my knee. So distributing load across the kinetic chain is critical. So it's the attached muscle, it's the kinetic chain, and it's having a good enough leg on the other side. You know, you think of track and field, everything you do, you do on one leg at a time. So we really rally against double leg exercises because you don't, that's not how you use it. And the tendon's sneaky. It'll find a way to hide hmm. in the kinetic chain. Hmm. Yeah. In double, in double leg exercises, it's easier to even compensate like, like in the basically find a compensation pattern where the tendon can avoid getting loaded or something like that. You bet. Interesting. 
Uh, that actually brings me to something that you, you were talking about compressive loads and I'm trying to, I actually, I was, I was taking, um, notes as you were talking about the tensile compression combined shear and those things. And I was trying to think, uh, put some things together in terms of, um, it was interesting. You were talking about like the compression and the dorsiflexion, but what are some like guidelines for range of motion, either, either Achilles or patella, like when we're rehabilitating, uh, tendons, it's kind of a thing where. I'm sure like at initial stages, at least like range of motion can probably be really provoking, but at some point we probably want to get like a good full range. Like, like even I, I've seen people doing squats and got heard good anecdotes from people doing like squats where the knees go way over the toes and the feet are on a block to give the uh, knees range of motion loading there. And I, I'm sure that Achilles is probably particular with the compression there, but how does, um, how does range of motion and and load and range of motion play a role in, in some of the tendon rehabilitation? Fantastic question. You're exactly right. We often limit it at the start and we can talk through how to work that out. But we also look to get that back because that's really functional. We want to make people, you know, strong through range. We don't want to be limiting what they do, particularly if that's what they need for their sport. And it is often what they need for their sport. The great thing about regaining strength into dorsiflexion when people can is you can get much more load on the muscle in dorsiflexion than you can in neutral or plantar flexion so it's a fantastic um it's a fantastic strength um way to load and a fantastic range we just know with our uh, compressive tendinopathies that we don't start there but we absolutely um bring it back in so if we think of the Achilles insertion to start with, um, compression is so provocative that we talk to people about not being in bare feet. And then, as I said before, we might also go for a shoe with a, a heel to take them out of compression. We take them off stretching. And in the gym, the way we would limit them is we would go just from neutral and above. So we just wouldn't drop into dorsiflexion. So they might be in the gym in their shoe with a heel and just going through the small range of motion from, um, you know, that plantar grade or slightly plantar flexed up to full plantar flexion. So they're in that sort of modified range. With the mid-substance Achilles tendinopathy, um, they may have a bit of compression up in full plantar flexion just because of the posterior retinaculum. There's like a bit of connective tissue that wraps around the back of the Achilles to prevent bowstringing in full plantar flexion. So we would happily have those guys in, you know, dorsiflexion or, or plantar grade, like they're fine. Their position of compression might actually be full plantar flexion. So this is where um, differential diagnosis and understanding where the tendon problem is and what the source of compression is actually becomes really important. Um, with the patella tendon, we actually don't have a, um, we don't know the source of compression or we don't know if there is compression associated with the patella tendon. Um, there's been some theories, but um, we don't know the answer to that. We know clinically that they often struggle initially with the knee being forward of the ankle. So we do keep their tibia vertical. That's where we start. But again, we want to get people back to being able to move their bodies and perform optimally and, and introduce those things back in. And the way we do that, Joel, is once we're, once we're strong and we're going in a really good direction and we've got our 24-hour response to load, 
we would put them into a bit more um, range of motion or a bit more compression. That would be the change we would make. And then we'd listen to the tendon 24 hours later. So we want people to get back to everything. It's just about giving the tendon that little bit of change, that little bit of exposure, listening to it the next day and then going again. Yeah, with uh, with uh, rehabilitating tendons as well, with it just being fundamentally different than muscle. And I, I and as you're talking about all these different uh uh, programs and different ways to approach it. I was wondering how much of a rehab or reconditioning program for tendons is physical versus neurological, like the muscles coming back in to help support the tendon versus the tendon actually healing or you know, whatever's going on in there that is causing things to get better. And as well as to like, you know, people doing foam rolling and isometrics for patellar tendon pain and people getting relief from that. Like, it's just, it seems like there's so many ways that things can be happening with that. I was kind of curious I hope I hope this isn't a question that we could do a whole hour on either. But I'm just I'm curious on that. Let me do my best. I agree with you. That that could be a whole hour. I think that's such a fantastic question, and um, I've currently got a, a PhD student that I'm co-supervising, and one of the things he's really interested in is sort of the the temporal response or the change. So Sean Dockey and I wrote a um, an editorial which um, talked about this a little bit because in research, what you look at and when you look at it is really important. So we know that you can see um, neurological changes even immediately if we look at the, uh, the way the brain controls the muscle. We've got techniques for looking at that stuff. So we can look at excitability and inhibition. We can look at that as an immediate change. We can look at that as change over time. If we consider a muscle change, we don't usually expect to see um, hypertrophy, if that's what me we're measuring. We don't tend to see that in the first four weeks. So in the first four weeks of a program, the predominant change appears to be um, neurological. And then the tendon, the way we measure tendon, that's such a slow tissue to adapt. So the tendon might be changing within a shorter period of time, but studies that have looked at tendon over a week or four weeks or 12 weeks even often don't show anything um, because the tendon has such a, it's much more slower than our other tissues. So my, my not so short answer would be, I think we, um, I think everything changes. I think that's the wonderful thing about the body. Lorimer Mosley and I'd encourage anyone who's not listened to a podcast by Loz to get out there and do it. He talks about us being bioplastic, which is fantastic as a term. Everyone knows what neuroplastic is. Um, bioplastic accounts for every single cell in our body is capable of change till the day we die. I mean, that's so exciting. That just gives such great hope for people with pain and injury that they, they actually have this capacity to um, be better than they are now to improve. So what changes when we do a load program? I would argue everything. When we're doing strength, we're changing neurological features, we're changing muscle, even if you don't see it for four weeks, we're changing the substrate, we're changing tendon. Even if our techniques aren't good enough to pick it up, what I would say is the proportion of, or the contribution of each of those to the to the change depends on the time point at which you measure it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's uh in terms of in terms of deficits too. Like uh, in terms of like relatively healthy populations, or maybe people who have like 
have a history but in terms of uh advice for sports performance coaches too if you have like a team and who is relatively healthy but you're trying to mitigate you know knee tend achilles issues throughout the year uh and just like you it, you got me thinking you were talking about the capacity and load before is there any like practical uh thoughts in terms of uh w loading athletes properly like throughout a season like in supplementation to the work that they're already going to be doing in their sport which is obviously demanding is there any um prevention techniques or thoughts that uh like coaches can use in a preventative situation that's that's the million dollar question is is prevention i think the best um the best evidence we have for prevention is almost around um kind of uh common sense for one of a better term that's it's probably not the right term but what i'm getting at is there's no studies that have looked at long-term um interventions prospectively meaning I get all of your athletes now and I follow them over time and I see if something I did made a change in how many people got the injury. And part of that is because no coach would ever probably agree to that. Um, and, you know, especially only intervening in some athletes. So the best, the best uh, things that we have are based on, well, what do we know about who's vulnerable to tendinopathy? And the people that are vulnerable are those that have strength deficits so my first tip would be keep your athletes strong we love single leg work we love isolated work so we would go you know with seated calf raise and standing calf raise and leg extension and we would go through all of these very non-functional um isolated exercises because if someone has no deficit then you could put their kinetic chain together in a functional way but conversely, if you give someone a double leg squat and they have a deficit, it'll, that deficit will remain. It'll find a way to hide in the kinetic chain. So my first tip is keep people strong and keep the exercise isolated. My second tip is separate your load with your speed. So as you said, people are training and working really hard. Keep that as body weight only. Keep that as all of your faster sessions. But separate to that, keep in your strength sessions, which are slow, weight-based and in the gym. So we don't combine speed and load. Um, and the way we would do that, for example, for a leg extension would be a three-second concentric contraction and a four-second eccentric contraction. Um, my third tip would be around cross-education. So cross-education is the concept of strength training one side and getting a transfer of strength to the other side. And it's a wonderful phenomenon. And um, the way you should use this is, is don't punish your better side. If one side is strong, get off and change the weights. We want you to be um, symmetrical at the end, not at the start. And if you, if you only do an easier weight, even though that side is stronger, you won't get the benefits of cross-education. Um, for cross-ed to work, it has to be heavy. And in fact, cross-education is um, enhanced by a metronome or external pacing. So that would be my fourth tip. My fourth tip would be um, consider using something to pace the strength training of athletes and um, that not only guarantees your time under tension, Joel. So if you ask 
someone to do a three-second concentric and a four-second eccentric leg extension, um, they actually do it much faster. So this will slow them down. So you'll get the time under tension that you're after from a strength training perspective. But what you also change, and this for me is the critical bit, you change the control from your brain. So every time you do an exercise, that exercise or that movement is 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 a balance between um, your, you can think about it like the brake and the accelerator of a car, okay? And the brake is your inhibition and the accelerator is your um, excitation. And so we have this constant um, balance of, of the brake and the accelerator. That's, that's normal. And in people with tendon pain um, in the patella tendon, it's been shown in the elbow, they have, a, they have a disruption to their brake and their accelerator. And what the metronome or the external pacing during strength training does is actually retrains their their brain's control of their of their muscle. So that would be, I think, our best evidence that we know of for preventing, in inverted commas, um, tendon pain or managing those, in fact, managing those that have a past history or managing those with current symptoms. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I love what you brought up about the metrum. And that was like a super loaded question too, because like you said, how many you know, uh, training studies have been done where it's like, you know, here's, hey coach, here's some athletes, let's do this. Like, or you guys have to do a bunch of isometrics and you guys have to do a bunch of e Like, that would be a really tough study to do. Uh, but I really liked your answers. And the single leg thing especially, I feel like it just it puts such a... Um, uh, it just, I think every time we watch athletes do a squat or bilateral movement, it would make us think differently versus their ability to do something on a single leg and be really strong with it. And, and like a skater squat or pistol squat or something like that. Uh, I'm glad you brought up, um, the, the cross education, the metronome, cause I was going to ask you about that a little bit. And I, as well as to how you talked about how slow training, uh, impacts the motor, motor cortex. I've, I've found personally, like, and I think in sports performance, it tends to be, uh, people don't, you know, it's like, okay, well you compete fast. So we should go fast in the weight room too. Like we should put, you know, tendos and make everything really quick, but I've actually found taking a step back and using a slower tempo. Um, yeah, like it does something good from the motor control elements. Like it's almost like athletes, uh, kind of like what you were saying, like this almost like reduces the inhibition in some respects. And, uh, it's not like good train all the time, but there's certain um, certainly benefits to it. And so I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. Yep, I would agree with you. Yeah, I uh, I was going to say, like, I'd seen that study on, on the metronome and the training tempo. And for some reason, I kind of thought to myself in the past, like, um, like, is it something like neurological? Like, does the brain like a metronome? Like, does that, and it magically makes the, te like, like, <laughs> but it's, so you're saying it's more about the, uh, well, one, it probably controls the load on the tendon. Like it doesn't, it makes it more of a controlled stimulus to it, perhaps. And then it, then it's more of, a, it's more of a brain thing, I guess, than anything, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a brain and spinal cord thing. So what happens is when you're when you're hearing the sound, but also preempting the rhythm um, and and planning the movement, you're actually firing up lots of different connections in your brain to the motor cortex. So your auditory cortex, your frontal lobe, you've got this fantastic 
whole brain um, involvement and that appears to be really important. And people um, ask me whether or not, well, what if I just concentrate? What if I, what if I pace myself but I just really focus? And the evidence seems to be that the, the, um, the external pacing and the predictive, um, the sound of that, so uh, the rhythm of that appears to be really important. It's not just about concentration and it's not, you're not actually reacting to the sound. So people also say, can I listen to music? And the tempo of music changes quite a bit, whereas what we're after in the strength training is that predictable rhythmic stimulus that people um, are, are preempting in their mind, actually. Yeah, I, I really, I really like that. I've actually, I have personally gone to the point. Now, this wasn't thinking about the tendons. This was just, or, or maybe it was, maybe it was a little bit. I don't remember why exactly I did this, but I'd seen some research that it was good, and so I, um, I would put like a boombox in the middle of the weight room and put a metronome clicker on it. And my athletes all hated it. Like none of them, they would all rather listen to music than do their lifting to a slower tempo. But I always liked it. I always liked how it, because everyone did want to go faster. If you're like, okay, it's a 505 tempo. You'd watch one athlete do it in two seconds up and two seconds down. Yeah. And so you always had to um, get that get that going there. But it's, it's really cool to hear the full circle of like the brain stimulation uh, on different levels and how it's like you're taking something that's already good and making it more effective. What, what I do with my athletes, Joel, because um, I, I agree with you, I personally could not go through every single strength exercise with a metronome recording. I think that would be awful is I pick my battles. So what I do is I, I get them to do, um, so if I've got someone with current pain or a history, they would do that one exercise with the metronome and then I let them take their earphones off, blast the music and enjoy the, the group training and all the other benefits that you get from mm -hmm. um you know feeling like you're you're in that team situation um there are some people that that love it and they really feel like it that's the focus they need but for the people that don't want to listen to the metronome the whole time pick your battles maybe one or two exercises particularly if they've got um you know some really persistent deficits um then with that one exercise pair up your external pacing but otherwise let them listen to music or they won't do it at all yeah no i i can i can definitely see that and i i've even gotten to the point where i'm like i i had tried to find like um like ele electronic music uh that had a particular beats per minute to it yep. but but every time i tried to search that it just always ended up being really weird music and i just was like oh they're not gonna like this either so um yeah but uh yeah it was it was definitely a fun fun experience uh, so the last couple of quick questions, uh, for you, Ebony, and I know we had, we had talked a little bit before, like there's not, there's a lot we don't know about this stuff, but, um, for whatever you do know or whatever direction you could point us. And I know from, for all the performance coaches out there and track coaches and thinking about just tendon strength and reactivity and athletes, uh, you had said it takes a long time to build up like the tendons. And so in terms of, um, like, uh, either training considerations or, time taken to actually build up physical strength in the tendons. Uh, is there a, a direction you could point us or, or just general uh, general ideas that might help coaches who are like, yes, I want to have strong tendons and I want to uh, look at training methods that might give this a benefit over time? 
Actually, that, that's a great question. And there's been a systematic review um, that compared strength training with plyometrics training because one of the things I always talk about our coaches with is we we want that, that fantastic, uh, we talk about, you know, stiffness and we can all define that slightly differently. But at the end of the day, we all inherently know what that means. We want our athletes to, you know, impact the ground really bloody quickly and get moving again like that, that um, you know, that fast kind of ability that we see our really, really good athletes. And that comes from, from actually having a really good, nice, stiff tendon. Um, if you have a sloppy tendon, you know, when you land, you sort of land like jelly and take ages to take off again. So if we're talking about wanting that, that quick reaction, um, you know, people call it a lot of different things. And this systematic review actually demonstrated that um, there was good evidence for strength training improving that tendon stiffness and that multi-joint or, um, for example, our plyometrics actually didn't have the effect that we thought. So that's probably, for me, a real game changer in terms of what I recommend. You know, we often give plyometric activities. Now, I'm not saying that plyometrics don't have a role, but it's worth considering what they do and worth considering what the purpose of our exercise is and what our best evidence for for getting for getting that outcome. So that was by BOHM, and I think it's spelled B-O-H-M, and it's a systematic review that's looked at plyometrics and strength training and I believe in Achilles and patellar tendons. Um, so that might be one that um, people might want to go and check out and see what they can take away from it and if that helps them with their athletes. Yeah, interesting. I'll definitely put that in the show notes and I'll probably check it out after our show because that kind of is counterintuitive in some senses it to is. what I've what I've thought. I've, I've heard about the benefits of heavy strength training, but I, it's interesting with plyometrics. I'm, I'm excited to dig into that. Yeah, so was I. I've had some great conversations with our strength and conditioning coaches at work um, about it because it, it is it's counterintuitive to what I would have thought. So I'd be really keen to, you know, to hear from you and, and see what you think about it because obviously you might think, oh, but that's not how we do it. Like there might be criticisms of um, the way people have done it, um, but I just thought, you know, it's thought-provoking. So it'd be great to, to see what you think. Absolutely, yeah. I I always love things that are thought provoking. That's uh, to me. That's uh, that's always exciting. So I'm I'm definitely interested to see uh, their their perspective on that. I'm sure I'll come out uh, having learned something for sure and having a new way of looking at things. So, uh, but that's uh, that's all the questions I have. We did. I think we did get all through them. And uh, this is a, a great conversation, Ebony. You know, I I love talking about uh, things that are you know basically everything you're doing is just like on the cutting edge and. And it's just so much fun talking about this stuff. So thank you so much for your time today. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much for the invitation. I've, I've really enjoyed our chat and I'd be happy to chat again. And yeah, thanks, thanks again. I'm really, I'm flattered that you'd ask me. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. Appreciate you guys being here. And uh, that was just such a cool episode that I learned a ton from, learned a ton taking show notes on. Uh, my views and thoughts and ideas on tendons have leveled up, so to speak, uh, in this this game of life, game of performance training life, I guess. I, I know, I'm sure you guys learned a lot as well. 
And we'll see you guys here next week with another great guest. Uh, parting out, just a couple of quick things. One, if you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, I guess uh, what's Spotify. Spotify is one too. I don't know if you can leave a rating there. But hey, we just appreciate your listenership. If you could somehow do that for us, we, we would appreciate it as well. Also, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Be sure to visit them, support them and what they are doing. Uh, and they are doing a great thing through their uh, blog and uh, the the technology that they offer for athletic performance. All right. Well, that does it for on my end. We'll see you guys next week.